Very good. Thank you so much. Well, if you're going to remember White's Causeway, then I'm going to ask you to do it with a, a semblance of knowledge. Um, today, actually, specifically today, is, is exactly three years since I delivered my first sermon at White's Causeway Baptist Church as their pastor. Um, in the last three years, it has been a rather incredible journey for our small congregation. We've gone from um, the first week that I was there, we've gone from 35 that attended that week to now touching 70. We've actually had the church as full as 109. Um, the church themselves have been waiting for, they've been waiting for the blessing of God to come through and to shine through them. And I can tell you that the last three years has been pretty much miracle after miracle. Um, after seven years without a baptism, we've had three. We're going to have four soon. Um, we are have an increase in membership. We have an increase in the number of people who are coming to our cafe. We are engaged now with some vulnerable youth in the town of Kirkcaldy who are coming in and actually kitchen for that cafe, which means that we have vulnerable youth dealing with vulnerable adults in the context of Christ's love as church volunteers come and actually minister to them both. We haven't just had that to do, though. We have a building that is not like yourselves in need of, we haven't called it repair, we've called it re-education. And we've prayed very, very firmly, and I'll just give you a snippet of that. The first thing that needed to be done was to make it watertight which involved the back halls needing a completely new roof. That was £66,000 that it was going to cost for a congregation of our size. That was no small amount. We had £60,000 in the bank. I promised, probably rather blasé-ish, that if the church entered into this and we believed that God was leading us in this direction, then He would provide. So we went in with less than the money that was required. We had £60,000 in the bank when we started and we had over 50 when we finished, which was absolutely incredible. That meant that we weren't only able to do the roof, but we were able to do the heating, <laughs> which isn't warm air and doesn't require special parts to be flown in from Argentina or wherever it's coming from. <laughs> it has been an incredible three years. We are now at the point where potentially we're going to be able to look at a second pastor to come and actually deal with the children who have come, which has gone up from three to 20. We have an absolutely incredible family of people. That is the word that we use to describe ourselves. We don't try and do everything for everyone because we Connie, as they say over in my end. But instead, what we try and do is what God has called us to do well. And that is the basis for the movement. So yes, please pray for White's Causeway because it's the wee churches like us that don't seem to get their stories heard very often. And it's the wee churches like us that actually, I can tell you now, are flinging everything at it. It's an incredible thing. Probably not unlike the wee church that Philemon was in. Did you see that beautiful segue? We're going to go back there. I have an apology to make. Is your, is your youth and children's pastor here today? She's not brilliant. So I can tell her 
that I'm going to go against what she said. No, I'm not doing that. She suggested to you last week that the mainstay of the book of Philemon, by the way, we're going through the whole book of Philemon in two weeks, for those of you that weren't here, and we learned a little bit about the character himself. We're going to learn a little bit more about what he is called to do because of the character that he is today. She suggested to you that the mainstay of what was to come with this letter that Paul wrote from prison to this church leader, to this person who was had some wealth and some means behind him, to this head of the household, had something to do with the importance and indeed the power of forgiveness. She wasn't wrong. She just didn't give you the whole story. And I want to use her inspiration for what she said to the children last week to be the rock, the basis at which we actually look at just how difficult it is to enact an attitude of Christ-driven love in a context which is just not easy. And that's what we're going to be learning today. Because I can tell you now that when you start scratching away at the surface of what Paul has to say about both Philemon and Onesimus, the runaway slave, it actually starts to get distinctly uncomfortable. Now, a word of warning. When I preach, I will use, um, I will use the you pronoun, I will use the we pronoun, I will use the pronoun. I am aware that I am coming to this congregation completely blind about what it is that you do, what it is that you're good at, and maybe what it is that you're not good at. Please do not think that as I stand up here that I am taking advantage of the position that you have gifted me and that Christ has called me to this morning come and around because I don't have that authority nor do I have that knowledge. I am simply delivering to you what it is that God has drawn forth from this letter to me to deliver out. Is that okay? Do we have an understanding? that we're not going to fall out, because I'd quite like to come back if you'd have me. It's quite a nice wee place. And when I come back, I want to be through here. No, I'm only joking. You can, we can go by myself. Yep, that'll be fine. So are we good? Do, do we have that communication barrier out the way? Are we all right with each other? Is that all right? Good. Philemon, do we know where we are? I've given you plenty of chance to find it. Studious guy at the front here. He's already found it. He's got it. Ah, yes, I've got it here. I know where we are. Tiny book. We're starting at verse 8. <laughs> See, I've got out all the people that didn't look. Philemon, starting at verse 8. Paul's been very encouraging up to this point. He changes his tone very slightly in what he goes on to. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold, it would be bold, and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus. That's a strange way to refer to a runaway slave who's come to you. 
who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. Stick your finger there. Remember that verse. We're coming back to it. I'm sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would like to have kept him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. That's very generous of him. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He's very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a pardon, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me, like Philemon actually will need that money. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me for your very self. Well, okay, very good. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. Yours faithfully, Paul. Because that's basically what the end is. Do you see how we're going to sing? Do we normally sit for this one or do we stand? Lord, I come to you. Let's stand and sing the power of your love. Number 880. Ponder this morning how, how easy about love and how difficult it can sometimes be to practice. Now, there needs to be a slight disclaimer with that. Talking about romantic love. I'm not talking about the whole mushy side of what can be seen as glorification of the Valentine aspect of that heart-pounding moment when I first gazed my eyes upon my wife. By the way, when I met my wife, she, she planned the whole thing. She left her bag behind in a lecture and came back to get it. Me. And she, <laughs> Not that love. Not that love. I'm talking about hard love. Um, the love goes beyond what society may deem as deserved from one individual to another, from one group to an individual. There's a hard form of love. Have you ever been on the delivering or the receiving side of a group attempting to love an individual? That's hard. That can be really tough. Or even worse, a group to another group. And I say that knowing today's football fixture. Hard love. But before I get into maybe some of the finer aspects of 
just what makes that difficult. I want to pull your eyes back to the verse that I told you to stick your finger at. Verse 11. If you were here last week, Philemon, great guy. Rich, generous. He is known for giving up. He is known for, um, um, for being a of generosity that is demonstrable, not to, to the church there, but Paul speaks of the fact that every time he thinks about him, he praises God for him. High praise indeed, right? Giving you a quick synopsis so that you know where we're going. Paul also speaks about the fact he doesn't want Philemon just simply to deliver that to the people he's got around him. He's praying specifically for more people to come to Philemon, for the fellowship of Christ to be extended, to grow. What an awesome guy. Your love is so good. Your love is so Christ-like. Your love is so wonderful. Your love is so enriching. Your love is so encouraging that I want more to see this because it's delivering something of Jesus into a hole they have in their lives. Great guy, right? You got the what last week was about. We switched act, and with Paul's change of tone comes a chain of change of character focus. Onesimus. You ever wondered about the word useful or useless? Paul goes out of his way to specify Onesimus in verse 11, as we have it written in English, as useless. This is a weird word. Useful and useless people are often terms that are held for the dreaded human resources. I'm sorry if anybody works. Where people are assessed on the quality of what they do as opposed to who they are. Slightly different meaning in this context. Paul doesn't have a management committee and a board to identify with. All he has is a language. A language work with. And this language that he's got to work with is Greek. And the Greek that we've got here is bizarre even still, because this word for useless, which is akrestos. 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 You got it in your head? Or akrestos. You could have that too. It only appears once in the Bible. So we're kind of left floundering. Akrestos. Akrestos. Well, well, what's going on here? Well, I can tell you about something that will probably help you. In Greek, when the language is used, often putting that A or A at the beginning of a word makes it the negative or makes it the opposite. To give you an example, if I was to talk about something being symmetrical, you would know what I was talking about, something that looks the same, a mirror image on two sides. However, if I was to tell you that it was asymmetrical, yes, you know what I'm doing with the word there. It means the opposite of what the initial root word is there. That happens in Greek. So, akrestos or akrestos, krestos, no, be mistake, Ron. Lop the A off. And you're left with krestos. So now we know that even though this word appears only once, we know the negative of what it is, so we can go about Scripture to find out exactly how Paul is describing Onesimus. If you want to follow in your Bibles, then please do. If you want to simply just hear where I'm taking you to, that is fine. Christos has sort of three kind of meanings in the New Testament, and I'm going to give you the 
three examples so that you know what we're working with here. By the way, this is something else that I do when I preach. I like to teach. I don't like to insult your intelligence. I think you can go with me on this, right? We good? Just tell me if I'm sticking up and repeat that if you need me to do that. We good? Good. Christos, Matthew 11.30. If you want to check that I'm not a raving heretic, then feel free to follow me. Matthew 11.30 has the word Christos. And that word is used in the English phrase that Jesus proclaims when he's speaking about something that he is and his faith in him is for people in their lives. Because what he says is, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know the phrase? Easy. Christos. Easy. In this context, it means something which is not weighing down a person both in their spirit and in their mind, indeed even in their body. You know how hard an ox or a cow can work to pull the yoke of a plow. Yes, it is not that. Which means, if Christos means easy, a Christos means that Onesimus was the exact opposite of that. Think of the servant, if you will. By the way, I'm not getting into issues of slavery within first and second, second, first and second century Middle Eastern culture. There's no the time. Think of Philemon dealing with Onesimus, who is not easy. This man is a burden. He's something that causes you constant strain, causes you to have to think all the time about what you are doing about what you're saying to him. He causes you struggle. You have to go in and deal with different aspects of the work that he has done in order to either correct or to make right anything that's gone on in the background. We all know someone who is a burden. Do we? I'll keep going. Christos, used in the context of 1 Corinthians 15.33, Paul writes in another letter, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Christos, good. Yes, bad company corrupts good character. So good in this sense is something which is identifying with the moral aptitude of the human heart of human behavior, someone who always sets out to do the right thing, who tries at every eventuality to make sure that good and right is at the highest concern of everything that goes on. If Christos is good, eh, Christos, imagine Philemon dealing with Onesimus. Not only is he a burden, but he's someone who doesn't even speak of a morally good character. In the context of what we draw out from Corinthians, a morally bad character is corrupting. So it's not even something that is reserved to Onesimus himself. He's not just simply the one who is going out and attempting to do the bad things or the easy things. He is actively participating in the corruption of other people in the household. We all know someone who is bad. A burden. 
morally bad. There's a third meaning. I'm looking at Ephesians 4, 32. Paul also writing in a letter, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Christos, kind. In the context of what's spoken about, about an encouragement to a church to practice the form of kindness that Jesus and God had demonstrated to them and indeed to all of us by stepping into this world to save us even before we knew Him. You know the bits that I'm talking about, right? Kind. To a fault. Kind and compassionate. Showing mercy when it's not requested. Showing love when it seems that in other situations it's not deserved. Showing compassion when other people may say not to. If Christos is kind, a Christos is I don't even think mean would come close to it, would it? But I'm going to use the word mean-spirited, mean-hearted, actively mean, mean with possessions, mean with love. Who have we got here in this character of Onesimus? I don't know about you, but I didn't like the guy. If Paul is describing a man, a Christos, as a burden, as mean, as corrupted and corrupting, morally and actively, well, I don't know if anyone has had the misfortune of knowing someone who's quite that bad. Have you? Useless. You get a pretty broad idea of how Paul is describing this guy, right? And this is how Philemon knows him. This is what the person of Philemon, who who is so intrinsically good in his person and in his nature, this is the guy he knows. I don't know about you, but that raises a few questions for me. The first question it raises is, how has a guy like Onesimus managed to develop into the person that he is under the tutelage, the guidance, and the household of someone who is described as being so good? Yeah? And yet maybe we know of <laughs> households where that's happened or context which that's occurred despite the best wishes or actions or work of the people who have been done, there is certainly Philemon's and Onesimus's out there, right? Right? If you're with me, nod. Tell you the other question that it raises for me. How did Philemon manage 
You, do you know? The, the, the emotional strain and the struggle of having to deal on a daily basis with someone who is like that. Someone who just drains from you, who, who takes from you, who doesn't even consider the, 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 what their actions are going to entail for anything wider than themselves, just so personally involved with their own yuck. No matter how much you may try and help and no matter how much you may try and discipline and no matter how much you may try and do for this person, it's just wearing and tiring. Do you know what? I've come to a different conclusion. There are some people that discuss the fact that maybe Philemon in his position of power would have been angry at a slave who had left. Do you want to know what I think his primary emotion would have been at this point? Relief. Can you imagine dealing with that situation and then the person runs away? <sighs> How many of you have prayed that prayer? Lord, I just cannot deal with this person whether it's today or whether it's in my life, I want you just to rid me of this person. And then when they go and you're finally, Lord, we have a miracle. Yeah? Where someone is just so difficult to deal with. This is the reality that Philemon has got in front of him. This is how he knows this guy. Finally, he ran away. He hasn't heard from him in weeks and months. Delighted. Life is back to normal. The household can finally be set at a center, at a gauge, at a point, and this is great, and then all of a sudden there's a messenger arrives, and behind that messenger is a face that you know only too well, and a letter that you receive from the hand of Paul, and then you read that. I want to ask you right now, you don't have to answer vocally, how would you have reacted yeah, I've got some nervous giggles and some hidden heads. I know what I would have done. I believe the Lord is calling me to another pastorate. Not again. Not this guy again. And then you read the letter from Paul. Ugh. Paul just doesn't get it. I know he may be someone from God, but he just doesn't understand. He just... And now I've got to bring him back in. And he expects me, on the basis of Christian love, to just permit this man, useless man, to have a place in my useful ministry. I, don't know, I, don't, I wouldn't have even cared. It could have said anything in the midst of this. And I would have been dreading the situation at the very least. Yes? I want to tell you something now. I could stop the sermon right there. Okay? I could stop it now. You are that uncomfortable with the prospect of what is actually being called for in the Christian character in dealing with someone who is returning to the situation. I don't even have to give you examples. I could stop there and leave you with the uncomfortable truth of what is going on in that story. And it would be, yeah? You would walk away from here, and I know what you would do. 
because I would do it. I'm a reasonable guy. When I, right, let me rephrase that. When I say I am a reasonable guy, that doesn't mean that I'm sometimes not obtuse. That means that I like to reason things out. Yeah? Do you know those types of people? I, I like to have the information in front of me. I like to go through all the different things. And I do that when I come to biblical study as well. I'm taught to do that in the midst of not just how I was raised, but indeed how I'm continue, continuing to be trained. I'm currently studying a master's. You're taught to question everything. Have everything in front of you before you do all the bits and pieces. And I know what you would do. You would do like me. You would have the truth that would say, right, the call that Paul is giving to Philemon at this point is to go forward and to bring this person back into the house, to bring back into the household. And then the final bit of the sermon goes something like this. And so the love of God, which comes through Philemon as a character, indeed, that Paul calls for, for Philemon to demonstrate, is to go above and beyond all the sins that have happened in the background. And that would be a good gospel sermon. And I would tell you something along the lines of how Jesus did that for you when he came, and you would go away praising God and say, well, that's absolutely great, but see, when it comes to human and human relationships, well, things are just a little bit more tricky. And you would start doing the little bit picking, right? Yeah? Am I right? Well, when humans are dealing with other humans, we've got to take history into account in some of the thing because that's the only demonstration of character that we have. We've got to at least expect someone to show repentance. We're really good at throwing that word about in church, aren't we? If you want to come to church, then you must repent. What are we asking for in that stage? Quite often what we're asking is for something to satisfy our own human inclination of needing to know whether that person is actually really doing what he says or she says he's doing. Yeah? Repent. Do something big. I want to see. I need to know. And then you would start breaking it apart further and you say, well, you know, love is this thing. It doesn't mean that we necessarily have to feel the thing for a guy. It just means that we have to be able to create the space for them to be able to grow in Christ. And isn't that great? And Christ will take care of the rest and they'll do it as long as I don't have to deal with that person because actually as long as Christ is doing the work, then I can stand over here until I'm perfectly sure that they're not going to be a danger to me. You know the sort of reasonable that I'm talking about, Yes. Have you done it? Am I insane? Please tell me if I am insane. Is this the thing that you've all done? You've stuck the caveats on. I could stop there, leave you to go away and muddle through that. Problem is, Paul doesn't stop there. And so if I'm going to give you the rest of what's going on, I need to give you the rest of what Paul does. And Paul continues horrifically, horrifically, for human sensibilities. He says this, perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while, Paul recognizes the fact that Philemon <laughs> may have been praying to God to take this guy away. Perhaps the reason God took him away from you for a while, oh Lord, where are you going with this, Paul? Was that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. 
He's very dear to me, but even dearer to you. Ah, you think so? Both as a fellow man. My inclination towards being reasonable has just been chucked out the window by those two sentences. You want to know why? Paul doesn't ask for Philemon to take Onesimus back as a slave. That's problem one. As a brother. He uses a very key phrase in there, by the way. As a fellow man. Or maybe it would be more appropriate to use the phrase, as a free man. Oh. So Onesimus is coming back, standing at the doorway while you're reading the letter, okay? He's not just coming back to attend the church. You're standing at the door. He's coming back to join the worship team. He's coming back to take on the role as associate pastor. He's coming back to preach a guest sermon for me because he's been taken on by the church just doing the road, which serves some folk that are in prison. He's a prison chaplain now. as a fellow, as an equal. An explosion of questions must take place for Philemon at this point. How on earth am I going to get over my issues? How on earth am I going to tell the other servants? How on earth am I going to tell the household? How on earth am I going to save face in a society that would expect me to kill him? How on earth am I supposed to continue what I am doing with this guy in here, how am I supposed to forget the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years? There are more questions on top of that, and you know what they are, yeah? And then comes the second problem. <laughs> oh, Paul, you're a stink. He's not just to be kept at a distance. He's now your brother. So the guy that came in, who you've had to welcome at the door, who is the prison chaplain that stole from you, as he walks in there, he's now your kin. He's not just your blood relative. He's your faith relative which means that the connection that exists now between you and him is thicker than blood. It's based in Jesus Christ, who, if you're completely honest with yourself, has forgiven you quite a lot. Yeah? And now commands for you to do the same. On the word of the letter of recommendation that the visiting preacher gave you as he came to the door. Ha!
Are you uncomfortable? Because if you're not, you should be. I could go on, but I'm not. I'm simply going to ask you the question that Paul poses in the midst of this text. Are you capable of that? Not just are you capable of that, are you capable of more? Because if you're not, you're not doing it right. And I've got to take a good long look in the mirror if that's the standard that we are expected to aim for. Because here's the, here's the real kicker. Paul is essentially saying to me and to you, to Philemon, and to anyone else who may be listening to the words of this letter, that the bonds of love and family that exist in Christ go above human sensibilities. And if you have ever written someone off as useless, you are as much a sinner as they are. Because God has the ability to turn useless into useful. And if you've ever prayed that prayer for someone to leave, be ready for the moment that they come back changed. Because if you're going to do the thing of entrusting someone into God's hands, don't expect God not to use them. And when they come back to that door, waiting to enter back into your life, whatever way it may be, it's not going to be good enough to turn around and say, show me in that passage where Paul either promises or tells Philemon to expect an act of repentance. Show me in there, and I'll gladly walk out right now and let you do whatever the rest of it is that you're doing. There is nothing in that passage. Paul doesn't even say that he did it for him. It just says he became useful. We all know what that means though, right? And this isn't a challenge by the way, just for you as an individual, this is a challenge for each of us as church. My church and yours. You know what's interesting? It's easy to be generous when it's tapped into a well that's full. Philemon is great at being generous with money. He's great at being generous with his house, his stuff, all the things he owns. But once you start practicing generosity as an action that is being left in the hands of Jesus Christ and being left in the hands of God, the expectation is that your generosity will stop being coupled to the things you think you're good at and start have to become a marker for the rest of your life. If you say you love God... And that comes from the well of the knowledge of the fact that you know you're forgiven by Him. That's brilliant. It's fantastic. God loves you, and you love God, and God loves that you love Him. God expects very, very quickly that that love that you have for Him will be moved. It will be shifted out of the easy into the hard. That's what's going on. 
That's what's taking place in this passage. It may be hard. You may be telling me it's nigh on impossible. It can't be because that's what's being asked for. And if we're not doing it, we're not doing it right. Here's the end, I suppose. The end of the sermon's a little bit like the end of the letter. We actually don't know what the finish was. We don't know how it ended. I went scraping and searching for as many historical documents as I could, for as many ideas as to what happened to Philemon, his house, and his church. Couldn't find anything that would prove of any use to be able to deliver you today. I have no idea what happens. And maybe that's exactly the point. None of us knows what's going to happen. All we know is who we are called to be and what we are called to do. Amen.